Okay, uh, hello and welcome to another episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, it has been a while since we had a show, mainly because uh, uh, our various members have been all over the place. I haven't, I've been stuck here in Holland, but uh, with me is Neil Morrison, the the, uh, the, the globetrotting Neil Morrison. Uh, how are you? Are you recovered from uh, jet lag yet? Not quite, David. No, the the bedraggled and uh, sleep deprived Neil Morrison. I think it is at this point of the season. Um, yeah, not quite recovered. Feel like I've been sort of sleepwalking, uh, floating for about five days now. Um, but I am told that uh, it's due to change quite soon. So, uh, yes, hopefully I'll be all right by Valencia. Right. So, well, I, I think we have to start with Mark Marquez. Now, Mark Marquez had a pretty decent um, uh, little flyaway tour there, winning two out of the three races. So, I mean, what did you what did you say? I mean, like the the, the win at um, uh, obviously one at Mategi, uh, just beating uh, Fabio Quartararo, battled all the way down to the line in a fantastic race at Phillip Island. Um, uh, uh, passing Maverick Vinales on uh, sort of j- just before the last lap and then Maverick uh, Vinales crashing out just uh, trying to get him back uh, and then he just could not stay with the pace of Maverick Vinales in Sepang but that was after he managed to launch himself into the asphalt basically not even low earth orbit just sort of plain ordinary the asphalt uh, during qualifying but he still managed to come second quite an achievement yeah exactly I mean not really surprising at this point of the season when he's finished no lower than second I mean we've mentioned this quite a few times this year um, that's him on a bad day um, although Sepang I think was only the second time this year that he's been I guess you could say soundly beaten in the closing laps even though he was uh, pushing Vinales for much of that race um, but um, yeah Marquez has made it his mission this year to um, I think break the all-time points record which he did at Sepang he um, broke Jorge Lorenzo's record from 2010 of scoring the most points across the MotoGP season um, his aim of winning the Triple Crown for Honda that's the riders constructors and team championship uh, remains very much alive I think there's just one point in it now between uh, Honda and Ducati um, so you'd have to say it was job done um, his performance at Phillip Island was exceptional absolutely one of his best rides I think we would have to say I don't really think Honda nor Marquez had any right to be as close as they were uh, to Vinales um, considering Vinales's pace and speed across all of the, the weekend at Phillip Island Um so yeah, it was just uh, it was it was typical mark really from from what we've seen in 2019. Um, Sepang again that crash on Saturday uh, that was a real bruiser. I mean, I think that would have knocked any of us out, but quite amazingly, it wasn't showing any kind of uh, lasting damage um, from that. I mean, it was real nasty fall, but. Um, you know, he just uh, got up, dusted himself down and seemed to be all right in the race. And you kind of feel like Vinales made a real break at the start of the, the race in Malaysia and managed to do what he couldn't quite get done at Phillip Island, which was actually put like second or thereabouts into Marquez. And um, with the Yamaha working so well through the the, kind of the corners at the moment, um, you know, Marquez was able to get everything back on the straight at Phillip Island lap after lap. And uh, Vinales just had enough by the time Marquez got through to second and really started working on him um, to make sure that uh, he couldn't just get close enough 
in the slipstream along the, uh, the two main streets to um, to really hang on to his coattails. Yeah, I mean, certainly it's a pang. Uh, Vinales, he got the gap that he needed, really. You need to get that sort of second gap or gap of one second to be able to make the difference, to make it that much more difficult to actually uh, close up again. And it also looked like there was times, because I think the, the, the gap grew to about two seconds or so, and then Mark, uh, Marquez would... would claw a little bit back and then Maverick would respond again and so it sort of yo-yoed backwards and forwards you could tell they were sort of really pushing at some point the you know Marquez sort of cried uh, enough um it, it's not worth it and and finishing second to me I mean like I wasn't sure finishing second seems incredible for for a start for uh, starting from uh, what is he 11th 11th yeah his worst uh, his worst start um since I think Mugello 2015 yep. um he had an astonishing first lap though for him to come through uh, to uh, what was I think third by the time he uh, by, by the time the uh, the end of the first lap yeah, fifth by corner three. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was that, that was really, really impressive, and it was really clinical as well. It wasn't, you know, barging people out of the way. It was, uh, it was sort of seeing a gap, and as soon as he saw a gap, not hesitating. I think there was there was perhaps one move which was, a, a, I think, at turn nine, which was not harsh, but um, uh, uh, shall we say a little bit firm. But that was, uh, the, the, you know, none of them were really questionable in the way that you've seen some of his passes. Uh, in the past, in other races, um, for me, it's difficult to say whether his performance at Sepang is better than his performance at uh, at Phillip Island. Like in Phillip Island, he was there all the time. At Sepang, he really had to work for it and uh, to actually be uh, to actually finish, you know, finish second again, keeping his life. He's never finished a well. He's had one failure at Austin, and that's it. And otherwise, he's either finished first and second. And it, it becomes almost impossible just to beat that kind of consistency. That's, that's what's most impressive. Everyone has a bad circuit. It's just that when Mark comes to a bad circuit, he finishes second. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did he look at all um, uh, after, because it was a big smash during, uh, uh, during qualifying on Saturday, and... Well, entirely of his own making, we should add. I mean, he was, you know, trolling around trying to uh, get a get a toe off of um, Fabio Quartararo, and Fabio Quartararo was not inclined to give him a, uh, a toe. And so, when they both finally sort of stepped up and went for it, uh, he got thrown off, and um, you know, a cold tire crash. Simple as that. The tire had cooled down too much. He gave it a little bit too much, and he got flicked off. Um, it was a big, big crash. He was, you know, uh, bruising in his shoulders, bruising on his knees, uh, some inflammation in his shoulders as well, I think. When he was walking around on Sunday or even Saturday afternoon, was he? did he look at all beaten up or was he pretending to be all chirpy? No, no, he was uh, looking pretty fresh for a man that had just gone through that. I expected, I mean, the, the impact that he had on his chin, the lower part of his, the front of his helmet, I mean, that was basically just eating asphalt, as uh, our dear American friends would say. Um, I was expecting, like, you know, cuts on his chin or, you know, some sort of sign on his face that he had, he had taken a real bash and, you know, some bruising or whatever. But he, he looked honestly just as fresh as he normally does. I mean, obviously, he wasn't feeling fresh. I think um, he's just quite incredible at hiding pain and... Um, not using that as an excuse. Um, so yeah, considering what he had, what he had gone through, um, yeah, he was. Uh, I don't think 
he was using that as an excuse in the race. Maybe it was affecting him. I mean, we are talking about serious uh, heat. I think um, humidity uh, on Sunday afternoon was uh, in the region of 60-65%, uh, just under 30 degrees. Um, ambient temperatures, you know, it was punishing, punishing conditions. But, uh, you know, I'm sure that must have had some kind of effect for him on the bike, but he certainly wasn't using that as an excuse. No, it's again, I was, I, was it, uh, I think, Andrea Dovizioso at Philip Island, I think, talking about, uh, you know, riders showing pain about Nakagami, because none of us had any idea that Nakagami was really in a lot of, uh, a lot of problems with his shoulders. Uh, until he announced that he was going to have um, uh, he was going to have surgery on his uh, shoulders, and uh, obviously we had uh, Joan Zarco shipped in to uh, replace him. Um, seems like a good time to talk about Joan Zarco and the other uh, the, the other Honda riders. Um, Start off with Cal Crutchlow. Uh, he had a, a decent race at uh, at uh, Mategi. I think he finished fifth. He had a really good race in um, uh, in Phillip Island. Uh, he was the only rider who was getting anywhere near uh, Vinales and Marquez. Um, he ended up uh, on the podium in second. Um, if Vinales hadn't crashed, he still would have been a podium. Would have been third. It was just a. It was a really, really strong race. I think, and especially at a track where he destroyed himself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was like some sort of uh, yeah vindication for him coming back. He did say that he had felt uh, fear really going into uh, turn one all weekend. I mean, that was one of the real trouble spots for the wind. The wind was such a massive uh, issue at Phillip Island throughout that weekend. Um, I think they were talking about gusts in excess of 60 kilometers per hour on Saturday. I mean, we saw Miguel Oliveira's crash, which eventually brought an end to FP4 and saw qualifying get cancelled. I mean, he was just basically blown off the racing line by one strong gust. A couple of guys said they were following him, said he just had no chance whatsoever. So, you know, for Crutzo to go in there uh, or be going into into the doing corner uh, at such speeds with um, such precarious kind of weather conditions, um, I mean, that alone was uh, took some balls. Um, and yeah, he rode he rode fantastically. I mean, he, he did a real really strong um, job in trying his best to follow Vinales and Marcus whenever they checked out because that basically allowed him to take a break clear of the uh, the chasing pack, which was just mental for the first you know seven or eight laps. And uh, yeah, it worked off worked off a real treat. Um, and yeah, I think it's probably Crutzlow's. That was Crutzlow's best ride of uh, of the season. But then you know we go to Sepang, and I mean he struggled all weekend. It was a tough one. He crashed out. wasn't really sure why he crashed. And it was the the kind of the the return to the struggles that we saw at Misano or at Thailand. Um, you know there are certain tracks where it just it, he hasn't been able to to kind of make the Honda work for him this year. Um, and uh, yeah, he had the, the sort of the, the tough experience of, of being outperformed by Johan Zarco in Malaysia. Uh, yeah, I mean, it seems uh, certainly reasonable to think that that might have been um, uh, that might have had an effect. If you're sort of sitting there behind uh, Johan Zarco, the, the the rider that a lot of people are saying is going to take um, uh, Jorge Lorenzo's place if Lorenzo chooses to stand down, um, that's got to be. You know, pretty tough. That's got to be pretty. Uh, uh, that's got to play on your mind when you find the rider ahead of him. Obviously, you know, Zarco's on the 2018 bike, which made it um, a little bit easier to learn. 
but what do we think about about Zarko's performance? Because it seemed to me that um, he had a. I mean, it's a tough introduction to the to the Honda at Phillip Island with really difficult weather conditions, and as you say, really really strong winds, uh, so strong that they caused qualifying to be sort of postponed until until Sunday morning. Um, a, a cold track, not much grip, and uh, then he turns up at Sepang, and he had a really really solid race at uh, at Sepang, and a very uh, it was an impressive performance, really. I thought. What, it, what about you? Now, what was the, what was the general sense of, of how Zarco had done? Yeah, I thought Zarco did exceptionally well at Sepang. I think at Phillip Island he actually did pretty well as well, considering you mentioned there. I think FP two uh, prior to Sunday was the only session that was dry and that was kind of useful in the sense that riders weren't getting buffeted around by the wind. I mean, times on the Saturday were really slow. I think Jack Miller said at one point that uh, it was basically useless for trying to get a setting for the race because the wind was so strong, you're getting buffeted about, uh, gearing and everything was kind of different and you know you weren't able to use your normal racing lines. So Zarco essentially went into the race with, um, yeah, with uh, FP2 and morning warm-up as his only times uh, on the dry track with the Honda RC 213V, uh, the 18 bike, which, I mean, okay, he's had a year, well, the best part of a year on a KTM, um, which is obviously very different to the Yamaha, but I'd say that the Honda is probably still another different animal to learn completely. And uh, for him to be up there, I think he was challenging for the top 10 for the first half of the race, then he lost a lot of rear grip. And... Um, he ended up fighting with Paul Espargaro, so I thought he, he performed pretty well for his debut showing. Um, we spoke to Cal after the podium, and uh, someone asked him about Zarko's performance, and you could tell that he was a bit just fed up of asking or answering the same questions, and he basically said, like, well, you know, if I'm being honest, um, he is um, on a bike that's easier, so I think he should be doing better, placing higher, and um, probably finishing a bit closer to uh, the front so I'm not really threatened and by that I think we m can read that Crutchlow was feeling a little tiny bit threatened and <laughs> uh, was not expecting him to finish as close to the leader or finish as highly as he did um, and then we know that Zarko's one of his favourite tracks is Sepang I think he won two Moto2 races there in both of his title years had pole position there in his rookie year in MotoGP I mean we were kind of expecting him to be yeah maybe fighting for the top 10 but for him to be ahead of Cal and I mean well, I, I think he probably could have finished, what, seventh? He, he was kind of honing in on, on Quartararo whenever Mir uh, came up behind him. Um, uh, he would have finished ahead of Miller for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, Zarco came into the weekend saying, you know, I believe this bike isn't even just capable of a top 10. I think it's capable of a top seven. And we were like, whoa, you're setting the bar quite high there for yourself, sir. Um, but to be fair to him, I mean... That was that was some going, and for a guy that we've been spending all bloody year saying, "Oh, he's like, he's a he's a rider that can't really adapt his riding style." I mean, okay, yes, it's the 2018 Honda. We know that that's supposed to be a good deal friendlier than the current bike, but still, I mean, it wasn't as if he was back on an M1. He was riding a pretty different bike to what he's been used to in the last two years, and um, yeah, I thought he was uh, pretty exceptional in Sepang. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like uh, Zarco needs confidence in the front end, and that was the one thing which was completely missing with the with the KTM. It never really uh, had any confidence from the front end. Um, the 2018 Honda, there's a lot of confidence with it in the in the front end there, and it doesn't have the problem um, which the 2019 bike seems to have with engine braking, which seems to push the front uh, going into going into the corner, which suggests that you know the 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 they've made the engine more powerful but the, the uh, making it more powerful has also meant that it's uh, a lot more um difficult to control under under braking and that tends to sort of uh, it makes it more unpredictable and and uh, as i say it pushes the front when well, you when you're sort of going into the corner using the engine braking that makes it difficult to control um so yeah i mean it it seems it certainly seemed like an impressive debut and what effect does that have on jorge lorenzo i mean lorenzo had an absolute nightmare at uh, philip island 65 66 seconds behind um uh behind the winner his teammate on the same bike um he went a lot better in um uh went a lot better in in sepang you know a, a track where with grip uh or where there was a bit more grip um where he could feel a little bit more confident with what the bike was doing but he still ended up 34 seconds behind he's obviously still hurt um but what do we think and there were there was just constant rumors around around uh, jorge lorenzo what, what do we think his situation is uh, yeah, well, just to give our listeners just a wee tiny bit of context. I mean, some of those, I think, you know, rumours are, are slightly justified by him. And then some of them are just, you know, basically the press at its absolute worst. Like at Phillip Island, for example, uh, on the Thursday, I had a, a one-to-one interview with Jorge uh, after his debrief. And uh, as I was going to his debrief, I was looking for where it was, um, I couldn't quite find the, the Honda hospitality, and I came across a Spanish journalist who said, "Oh, haven't you heard that? Uh, you know, Jorge is about to announce his retirement. Like, you should probably get along there." And I was just like, "What? Oh, bloody hell! I'm going to be late for, you know, one of the the biggest announcements of the year, if not the biggest." Um, and then we got there, and he was just standing, looking completely befuddled, as were the Honda press personnel. Um, and essentially, I think a joke between some of the uh, the press officers <laughs> that. Uh, someone joked that Lorenzo was going to announce his retirement completely jokingly um, and that was then leaked by someone uh, to a journalist who then thought that that was the truth and that's exactly what was going to happen so I mean like all these kind of crazy things are are going around some of which I think really have to be t- treated with a, a real degree of caution um, but I mean there's no disguise in Australia was desperate. 66 seconds is, is kind of embarrassing. Um, I was looking at some of the photos of Jorge during the race, and I mean, he's barely even leant over in some corners. You could just tell that he was riding there with genuine, I think, fear, really, we can say, um, and a total lack of confidence. And yeah, that returned a little bit um, in Malaysia. But I mean, he's still, as you said, David, like a, he's still some way off. And yeah, it, it's it's tough to know really what uh, what the long term situation is. I mean, he says that he's going to stay. It seems that Honda are committed to trying to to turn this around. Um, yeah, I, I I don't really have any new news 
about the about the situation. How much do you think is his injury, and how much do you think is uh, sort of you know mental just fear of um, uh, fear of, of injuring himself again, and how much is the bike? Uh, yeah, I would say I would say at Phillip Island the, the the fear factor was probably quite quite high. Fast course, cold conditions, um, lots of wind throughout the weekend, barely any dry running. I think there you could just see from his body language. I was looking at some of um, uh, one of our, our uh, photographer colleagues was showing me photos of Lorenzo in FP1, which was wet, going into turn 10, the downhill hairpin, uh, the right-hander, which is before the two lefts that end the lap. And he was going in there on a flying lap, and Zarco, in his first session on that bike, rode around the outside of him as if Lorenzo was standing still. But but. The photographer showing me these this series of photographs was insisting that Lorenzo was on a flying lap prior to that. So yeah, something was was really missing there, and I think um, you know he, he's spoken about it. He's been quite open that since um, since this injury uh, in that one to one interview I had with him that I still have to, to publish. He was saying that yeah, when it's you know when it's a it's a back injury, it's something that makes you think, it makes you stop and and question really um, a lot of things. And um, yeah, that injury still hasn't recovered. I've seen some comments from him after Malaysia where he said that he'll probably need a further month and a half away from the track to be of resting and then starting to pick up full physical preparation again. He'll need a month and a half to be back 100%. Um, so yeah, if you're, to, if you're to believe that, he'll, he'll basically see the season through, probably scrape a point or two in Valencia and then hope with all of his heart that uh, Honda brought something that's a bit more manageable um, to the uh, the postseason tests in Valencia and Jerez. Um, I mean, what do we think about uh, about the situation at, uh, at Yamaha? They seem to have a pretty good flyaway. I mean, Maverick Vinales won one race, nearly won another. Uh, Fabio Quartararo finished second in uh, uh, Imategi. Uh, Quartararo had a big, big crash in Phillip Island, uh, but then absolutely destroyed the lap record in uh, uh, in Sepang. So, um, and I think uh, like uh, both Vinales and, and, and Rossi said that they'd, it, they'd made a difference having having. Uh, Having Quattararo there and having Quattararo be so fast had made a difference. They'd sort of, you know, made them realise that that they can push the bike further than uh, than they were doing previously. Yeah, I think it was in um, the qualifying press conference at Mategi that Franco Morbidelli, he had qualified in the front row, was asked about um, about the situation, and he said, "Yeah, like Fabio is actually the best." the best tool that Yamaha has at the moment because he is making us realize what exactly is possible with this machine. Um, and yeah, he had, a, he had a really strong second in Mategi. I think Phillip Island was massively, massively impressive from quarter hour. Yes, he made that mistake in the second corner. Uh, he had the, I think it was the hard rear tire. And I think a couple of other guys, Petrucci always hit the hard rear tire. Mm-hmm. Miller as well. They had big moments. Petrucci ended up crashing um, at turn two. So that was... A mistake which he held his hands up and admitted, but he missed, I think, FP2, yeah, because he had the big crash in yeah. FP1, hurt his left ankle, had a hematoma on his left ankle, which is no laughing matter. Um, his first dry running was in warm-up at Phillip Island on a MotoGP machine. 
you're nursing an injury, that's a pretty scary track to be going out first time with an injury. And he qualified second. I mean, for me, that was that was quite remarkable. Um, this performance there, and okay, the race let him down. But the Sepang, again, uh, outstanding in qualifying. Um, did not, I thought how he handled the Marquez incident was just absolutely brilliant. Didn't let it phase him whatsoever. Um on track, and then afterwards, when he was asked about it, didn't make a big deal of it. You know, just played it down and said, "Oh, you know, he was just trying to work me out or something." You didn't. You, I think we can all agree that Mark was maybe wasn't showing himself in the best light with his tactics, <laughs> to put it mildly. I think I wasn't just alone thinking that. Like I was speaking no. to a couple of ex-racers who said that he was bang out of line doing what he was doing. Um, and uh, yeah, for a quarter hour just shrugged it off. And I think, you know, he had some issues with his front tire pressure in the race. A uh, colleague of ours, Thomas Beaujard, in fact, friend of uh, the Panic Pass podcast, uh, spoke to Diego Gubellini, quarter hour's crew chief after the race, and Piero Taramasso from Michelin, who confirmed that basically um, because of the wet start to FP1, um, that's normally when they determine their tire, front tire pressure for the race. And because that was slightly affected by the rain, they didn't get to use that. Um, they basically didn't get to set the, the proper front tire pressure. And they took a little bit of a gamble, set it too low, thinking that quarter hour from the front row from pole position was going to lead the race as he did at Thailand or in uh, Mizano and have clear track in front of him. They set it very low. And then when he got a bad start, got basically bumped back through the field um, lots of bikes in front of him basically his, his front tire was overheating and he wasn't able to break so um, Sepang was definitely a disappointing result but there was a, a clear reason for that performance um, so I think yeah very good again and, and in Vinales I mean Vinales I thought was, uh, was seriously impressive I mean uh, I don't know about you but in my opinion I mean he had his pocket picked his pants pulled down a little bit of Phillip Island and I think a lesser rider would have been genuinely quite badly affected by that because I mean Mark is you just think well Finales can't win at Phillip Island what, you know where's his head going to be at surely you must think what, what do I have to do this guy's just always going to be there and and then he said on the Thursday, I think it was, in Malaysia, a couple of days later, he said Phillip Island felt like a victory because he had been running, um, you know, at the front until the very last lap. And a few of us, uh, you know, kind of looked at each other like, whoa, what? Like that, that end result felt like a victory for you. But he, he kept, I mean, he was, he was the absolute dominant force in Malaysia and that was a, a great ride. And you have to say the consistency that Vinales has been showing in the second part of the season, um, I mean, it does set him up pretty well for next year. You have to say that he, he really will have to take this momentum and he probably sh will take this momentum. This is the most consistent he's ever been in MotoGP. Um, and maybe next year will be finally the time when uh, we get to see the Vinales that we probably expected to see in 2017. Yeah, I mean, what was interesting was he said, you know, basically, well, I stopped testing stuff and just got on with, uh, they, they, they found a setting with the bike and they would go a little bit up and a little bit down and that was it. Uh, stopped testing anything new. Um, it was interesting seeing uh, Rossi try the new exhaust, which they tested in Misano. Rossi with the carbon swing arm. I think uh, Vinales had the carbon swing arm and exhaust on for like one session at Misano and then that was it for the rest of 
for, for, for the rest of it. Um, and he was just totally focused on, okay, let's just get what we can, let's see what we can get out of this bike. Um, which is a big change, but also an interesting change. It's the kind of change which you see a lot uh, when riders realize that they have that they have to make the difference and not so much, you know, hoping that they can get the difference, uh, the difference from the bike. Um, but yeah, I mean, b- both were really impressive. I did like uh, the the fact that he said after after winning it um, uh, after winning it Sepang, I think he again he said that w- what you said that you know Philip Arnold felt felt like a victory. So um, this just felt like you know you know sort of two in a row sort of thing. So it, it, it totally it had totally not phased him. Um, yeah, which is yeah, impress- which is impressive. Yeah, it, which is impressive. It's impressive to keep that kind of uh, mental focus. That's that, that's really really difficult and really um, uh, a positive sign because at, at times we have worried about uh, Vinales sort of mental strength, his resilience, and whether he could uh, stand up to that. But I think he answered that fairly resoundingly. Yeah, fairly emphatically. Yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, yeah, Yamaha, you have to say at this moment, does look like the the most balanced package on the grid because through free practice, I mean, Franco Morbidelli's pace was excellent. I mean, you had four Yamahas basically inside the top six in each session um, at Sepang, and that was with, that's had a track with two very long straights that are preceded by, you know, slow, low-gear corners. Um, but I mean, we did see, uh, we really saw where the Yamaha... Is still struggling in the battle with uh, a battle between Valentino Rossi and, and Andrea Dovizioso. Um, d- d- I mean, you know, Rossi basically looked quicker than Dovizioso, but just couldn't get past him because every time he did get past him, then Dovizioso would just blast past again on the uh, uh, on the straight, and Rossi could never get enough of a gap to uh, prevent. Uh, being taken, you know, being overtaken again uh, once he got caught by once uh, Davicioso uh, was there. So, it, I mean, the Yamaha does look like a fantastic bike, but it really does still have a one. I'm not sure I'd call it a glaring weakness, but an obvious weakness. Yeah, yeah, and they. I mean, I spoke to Massimo um, Marigali, the team manager, uh, to the the factory Yamaha team um, on the Thursday at Sepang, and he said it's it's honestly just been little small incremental improvements from the summer break that's pushed them forward. Improvements with the electronics, and it just seems to be a real positivity about um, about the atmosphere. I mean. It's really been a couple of years where Yamaha has really suffered and been in the doldrums and so much negativity has surrounded them and their efforts. Um, but it, it does just seem that they've got a real purpose about themselves again. Um, and that, I think, comes from the fact that they're maybe ahead of schedule with next year's bike. They were able to bring that to the Brno test. Also, the fact that they were finally bringing these new updates um, that Rossi had been asking for for so long. Um, and the fact that... Yeah, with these electronics changes and some small, subtle chassis changes. I mean, Vinales said he's basically been using the exact same base setting since uh, the Montmelo test in June. Um, and that, I think, um, technical guru Neil Spaulding believes that both he and Cordero uh, had a new chassis basically from there um, that Rossi didn't like. Um, that obviously hasn't been confirmed by, by Yamaha. Um, but, I mean, it does seem that from there, um, yeah, the package has been pretty good. And as you say, it's just the, the top speed that's been letting them down. 
And if they can get a bit more horsepower for uh, for uh, for 2020, it could be really uh, it could be quite interesting. With Quattararo having a, another year's experience under his belt, with Vinales looking, you know, like a real winner, Morbidelli looking strong, and you know Valentino Rossi as well. You know, again, Rossi came very close to a podium. Um, but not quite. But he has now. I think that was his that that was race forty six uh, since his last win. So forty five. Yeah, that's that. It's been two thousand and seven. Aston two thousand and seventeen, if I remember correctly. It's that's that's a yeah. long long time. And I was checking this earlier. That is his longest streak without a win in history by one race. Because I think he went 44 races without a win um, from what, Sepang 2010 to Assen 2013. Obviously, those years in Chicati were included in that time. So, yeah, I mean, historically, it hasn't been this bad ever. Mm. <laughs> but, but yeah, a ray of light, though. A ray of light at Sepang, I would say, because that was a really good ride from Rossi. Um, he was strong from the start of the race to the end. He's really suffered with rear tire wear and traction. Um, basically, in the second half of the season, he's just not... He's, he doesn't seem to know why exactly, but um, yeah, that is where he loses out when compared to, to Vinales and Cordero. Um, spoke to a few people that obviously he's been experimenting with uh, new braking styles. Um, apparently, before uh, Mategi, he went to Misano for a few days just by himself to basically work on his riding style, work on his braking technique, and how he uses the throttle. Um, so yeah, he's. I mean, he's not just sitting, sitting back and and awaiting his fate. I mean, he is uh, throwing quite a lot at this, and obviously with his new crew chief change uh, for next year, I mean there are going to be some quite quite considerable changes there. So um, yeah, Sepang was also his first. That's the first time he set the fastest lap in a race since Le Mans twenty sixteen, forty three months. So the speed the speed was there at Sepang. Um, yeah. So let's, I don't know, I, I feel like uh, kind of maybe it was a bit uh, premature to write Rossi off in uh, the last couple of months. But um, but yeah, there was there were some signs of, of light there in, um, at Sepang. Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting that uh, Rossi complains about a lack of traction, whereas uh, I remember, uh, I think, Marquez and a couple of other riders saying the Yamaha seems to have so much traction out of uh, uh, coming out of corners. So it really is... Um, seems to be specific to Rossi and whether that's you know due to his size or perhaps as you say due to the uh, chassis that he was uh, that he was using or the setup of the bike or something like that that's where he seems to be struggling where where where, where the others uh, where the others aren't um i want to move on to uh, ducati um uh, lastly um it not a bad not a bad sort of a runner races for for ducati but not quite good enough i mean we saw jack miller on the podium at um uh, uh at philip island and i think you was he on your flight or was he on cormac's flight but um uh, i think he was a little bit the worse for wear after uh, after finishing on the podium at, at philip island and entirely <laughs> entirely deserved i think i would have been quite the worse for wear as well um he had, certainly had no no voice left in the press uh, in the press conference by uh, uh, by the time he got to sepang um, he looked pretty strong in uh, Sepang, but couldn't really sort of uh, put it together. He really went backwards from the start of the race. 
but we did see Andrei Dovacesa get on the um, uh, get on the podium there, and Dovacesa looked looked really uh, uh, looked really strong in Sepang and didn't have a terrible race in um, in Phillip Island either, considering how they've struggled there in the past. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think Davizioso was uh, what he was sitting at the front of that group that was ultimately fighting for third place uh, going on to the last lap. I think he was sitting at the head of that group and then he made a mistake at turn two and ran wide and lost a load of places and that allowed Miller to get through. Um, but yeah, Davizioso was on the podium, in, uh, so he could have been on the podium at Phillip Island again. Um, and then he was third at Mategi and, and Sepang. So yeah, it's been, I still maintain that he's he's having a pretty strong season and he's riding really well. Um, and whenever he has been beaten by Miller, I mean, it's been by this much, you know, yeah. by a herd's breadth. Um, we haven't really seen Davizioso get comprehensively outperformed by another Ducati rider all year. No. Yeah, I'm going to say all year. Um, so yeah, I think I think he's still doing a pretty a pretty damn good job on that bike. Um, but it does seem that they've just well. Yeah, I mean, we've talked. I think we talked about this a little bit in the last show, um, but it's. I think it's. It's not that it's a worse bike. It's just that the rest of the field has got so much better. Yamaha has taken such a massive leap forward this year, um, and Suzuki as well. So two of the grid's strongest bikes are, are two of the the grid's best turning bikes, and when Ducati is in a battle amongst them, uh, I think that really that really does show. And it was interesting. I was speaking to some people uh, from Mitchell on, on Saturday night, and they believed that the, the the grip characteristics of Sepang this year were quite a bit lower than last year. Um, and even though the temperature wasn't as high, uh, because of the lack of the grip, basically um, uh, the teams with the faster bikes on the grid, basically Honda and Ducati, uh, had basically turned down their, their power a little bit to try and conserve tires because of the lack of grip on, available. Um, and therefore, I think if you look at the top speed charts, what the Yamaha has were losing on the straights uh, were not really, that was not uh, such a pronounced um, number when you compare that to some other races we've seen this year. Um, so it does seem that yeah, Ducati and Honda wasn't able to use all of its all of its power, all of its strength there at Sepang. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, Davizioso was there. I think Jack Miller has been showing recently that he is still figuring it out somewhat. He's still a wee bit mercurial up and down. I mean, Phillip Island was amazing. And then Sepang was, was just disastrous, really, even though he had so much potential. And on, on Saturday, he was talking as if he could maybe even win the race. Um, he felt he was that, that strong. But um, from the very start, he just wasn't able to wasn't able to stop the bike and was losing the front everywhere. He chose that soft front tire just like Davizioso did, but he was at a loss to explain why Davizioso was able to maintain his performance throughout that, and um, and he wasn't. Um, but, um, you know, both those guys have reasons to be positive. Um, whereas Danilo Petrucci, on the other hand, uh, it's, been a, it's been a pretty bad, pretty sorry second half of the year. Um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I... It, it's sort of hard to say, but it does seem like you know Petrucci struggled basically since uh, since Bruno, since um, uh, Luca Samprini passed away, his um, his uh, press officer. But um, he was also his friend, and I think he's taken that hard, and he's, then he's found it really difficult to uh, sort of find his feet again and find his speed again. And Petrucci just seems to he sort of you know has flashes up and down. 
Um, whereas David Chioso, I think David Chioso's race at um, uh, particularly at Sepang was just masterful, just really, really the the way he uh, uh, you know sort of outfoxed. He used all of the tools which he had to beat Valentino Rossi, even though Rossi was faster than him. Uh, you know, the fact that Rossi gets the gets the lap record so pretty much proves that. Um, but it was still uh, it was still Dovizioso who finished ahead of him. Um, so yeah, it, it, it does look, and it, it it reminds me a little bit of when we were talking about Yamaha last year. That uh, I think um, uh, Rossi last year was saying, yeah, we start off the uh, we start off the year strong, but then we sort of stand uh, stand still, and everyone catches us up and goes faster, and that's why we have sort of such a, a, a difficult time at the end of the year. And it looks like it's been the other way around where um, Yamaha have started strong and got better. It's been Dovizioso, it's been Ducatis, which have <laughs> Started well, um, but not made the same progression uh, as the Yamahas or Suzuki's, as you say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, it'd be really interesting. I mean, we, we kind of say this ahead of every preseason, um, just what direction Ducati will take, whether they'll listen Finally. to Finally. Yeah, whether they'll listen to Davizioso, and I'm not sure whether, whether they will. Um, you know, I, I kind of, from, from what you hear... Gigi Delinia seems to be convinced that with his philosophy of machine, uh, that bike can be capable of winning the title. Um, yeah. But this year it's, it's shown that it, it hasn't been. Yeah, exactly. Well, we shall talk about that in a moment when we come back. We'll take a quick break and then we will talk about, um, start looking ahead to the silly season for next year, some of the rider developments for, for next year. Uh, we've got a couple of uh, rider changes uh, and then we shall go on to our winners and losers. So we're uh, back in a moment. And a welcome back. Um, uh, one of the other things which we saw during the flyaways was the announcement of Johan Zarco's replacement at um, uh, in the uh, factory KTM team. We all wondered who it might be. Uh, might have been Mickey Calio getting it, but he didn't seem to get the. Uh, he, he never really found the speed uh, to be competitive. Uh, I know that Bradley Smith was interested because he had the experience on the bike, uh, but eventually KTM decided to move Brad Binder up into the factory team. Uh, he was already signed to race with uh, Tech Three. And they're moving Iker Likuona, uh, Lekuona, Iker Lekuona, gosh, uh, I'm going to have to get used to saying that name, I suspect, quite a lot next year. Um, uh, moving Iker Lekuona up into the Tech 3 team. That uh, There's a lot of interesting developments there. I mean, you know, the, the fact that they've chosen to put Binder straight into the factory team rather than moving Miguel Oliveira up, taking Lekuona, who is... Um, uh, still only 19 the first he's going to be the first MotoGP rider born in the 21st century which is um, makes me feel really really old um, okay boomer and he gets his uh, well yeah that's true it, it makes me feel old because I am actually really really <laughs> old so it's only fair <laughs> Um, uh, but also, Lequona is going to get his uh, with uh, Oliveira out, having had a, a shoulder a shoulder surgery. Um, Lequona gets his first go on the KTM at uh, Valencia. Um, uh, well, for actually, we'll start off with Oliveira because Oliveira's had a really strong, you know, a strong season on a difficult bike. 
Um, and he wasn't exactly delighted to hear that Brad Bender had uh, got the uh, got the call for the uh, factory team over him, did he? Was he? No, no, he was pretty uh, pretty uh, narked. I think we could say. Yep, he was. Uh, um, yeah, for a guy that's usually pretty cool and considered. Um, yeah, he was really pissed off whenever we spoke to him on the Thursday at Phillip Island. Um, I think, you know, he rightly sees himself as a, as a kind of a superior to Brad Binder in the sense that he's always just been that one step ahead of Brad um, in Model 3, Model 2. Uh, Brad has always just been one or two years behind him. Um, and, uh, yeah, to see Brad get, go up and, and get the, uh, the factory the factory bikes, I think, was pretty galling for him. Uh, we, <laughs> we had heard that um, Oliver had actually been briefed prior to speaking to us at Phillip Island to say, look, you know, okay, you're maybe not happy with this situation, but just smile and say that you're happy to be staying with Guy Coulon and the Tectois squad and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, he just came out and went completely off script, which I respect him for, <laughs> and told us that he was uh, he was not happy with the situation and it was, uh, well, he didn't quite use the words uh, bullshit, but that it was something resembling that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I like that from Oliver. I showed he had a bit of fire, a bit of... Uh, fire in the belly and um, I think you know what seems to have happened is that um, Hervé Poncheral said to, to KTM look I, I, I don't want to be going into next year with two rookies like and it seems to be that he's said whatever happens I want to keep Oliveira for next year and so KTM looked at all these options I mean they were looking at many different options to put in that um, in that factory team. I mean, we heard you mentioned Calio, Bradley Smith, I think were under consideration. Uh, the Spanish press, I've been told, uh, approached Alex Marquez whenever Zarco, um, whenever Zarco told them about the news uh, in Austria. Uh, they approached Remy Gardner to take that seat. They approached Jorge Martin, and all of those guys turned them down and basically said, look, we, we don't want to go up there on a one-year deal on a bike that's going to be pretty difficult to ride. Um with it all to do you know we want to maybe go in after a further year in Moto2 when we have a bit more momentum behind us a bit more experience um, so Lecawana I think essentially was a choice to step up to to, to Tectois um, wasn't necessarily last uh, resort um, but you know he was quite a bit down the pecking order um, but you do look at a guy that's pretty, pretty raw um, his temperament still needs to be worked on quite a lot um, I mean, he's still a feisty, uh, moody kind of teenager that maybe is, you know, still prone to really, um, uh, you know, he is a real temper, let's just say, um, when things don't go his way. And I think, you know, he'll need to iron that out and work on that. But he's a talent, man. I mean, look at his results on that bike. I mean, he's still on the pretty much the original version of that KTM chassis that was so problematic last November. I mean, I don't think he's had any updates this year with that American racing team squad. Um, that maybe hasn't, that's been a team that's, you know, been uh, working out some uh, financial problems of the, the, you know, that was the, the Swiss innovative investors team last year. And that was a team that was beset by a lot of financial issues. So it's still, I think, been paying off some of those issues, some of those, um, some of those problems. Um, from the past year and Lacone has still been what well, he was on the podium in Thailand um, had he not touched um, nerfed off um, Luca Marini on the first lap of Phillip Island he 
probably could have been on the podium there. Uh, I don't know if you read that excellent um, Matt Oxley's MotoGP mutterings. Uh, there was a great uh, quote from Lecona's current crew chief where he said he rides the bike with the rear and basically doesn't care at all what happens with the front. Uh, and they were looking at the data. Every single lap through the final corner at Phillip Island, he was apparently losing the front. Every lap, yet he was able to bring it back yeah. and correct it. Um, so, I mean, there's a, there's genuine talent there. And he's, this is only his third year, yeah. third full year in road racing. Um, his, you know, he got into road racing pretty late compared to the rest of the, the riders that he races against. So, yeah, he's a big talent. Um, and I'm quite excited to see how he gets on. Um, and yeah, and, and I mean Brad Bindle. We've spoken a, a couple of times this year. I mean, he's been, for my money, the, the class of the, the Moto Two field this year. Yes, he just missed out in the World Championship, but um, what he's done with the KTM, I think, has been quite awe-inspiring, especially in the second half of the year. Um, and um, well, if Pontreal was insisting that Oliveira stay there, then I think Binder was the next best chance. Uh, the, 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 Sorry, I think Binder was the next best choice to be promoted into the uh, into the factory team. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, the, it, Both of them yeah. have have a very long history with KTM anyway, because they've been with KTM since uh, uh, you know almost since they entered um, uh, sort of Grand Prix racing. They both came from Red Bull rookies. Um, uh, both raced for the IO team in Moto Three and then Moto Two. So uh, yeah, they, they they've both got very long ties with both Oliveira and Binder have very long ties. So it made sense to put uh, Binder uh, Binder on the bike uh, really. Uh, I want to come back to the um, uh, what you were saying earlier about all these people who turns down the the, the KTM ride. Um, this is something I heard uh, quite a lot earlier this season as well. That um, Moto Two riders were all looking at doing one year deals for 2020 because of uh, you know the, the the rider market was going to blow completely open for 2021. Every single seat is going to be open. Um, and you know, it sort of it, it, it's all up for grabs. We're already seeing a few sort of bits and bobs filtering through. Um, obviously, it looks like Mark Marcus is going to stay with Honda. And to be perfectly frank, he's you know he's treated like a king. They do what he wants. Um, he's got a bike he can win world championships on. So there's no reason for him to leave. Um, but we're starting to talk about Ducati, as you were saying about Ducati. Gigi Delinia believing his bike can win a championship. Um, there's talk of Maverick Vigna of uh, Ducati being interested in Maverick Vinales, uh, Ducati being interested in Fabio Quartararo. Although I think, I mean, you know, uh, factory interested in fast rider is not really sort of you know earth shattering news. Um, what what's the state of play? I mean, did you pick up anything? Was there anything really uh, surprising that, uh, that that you heard about? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, it does seem that um, yeah, Mark is going to get quite a considerable bump up in salary to stay with uh, to stay with Honda for another two years. Um, Yamaha, I think, has given itself until the end of preseason to determine whether Rossi will be fit and fast enough to to stay on. But the indication is that if he has a good preseason, they would be willing to keep him. Um, you can't sack him. That's the trouble. Yeah, exactly, um, and that puts them in a bit of a predicament because they've got well, two of the two of the grid's three fastest men at the moment <laughs> yeah. are Yamaha riders who are not Valentino Rossi. So who do they put in alongside him, Finales yeah. or Quadraro? So they're basically, if Rossi continues, they're they're letting one of those guys get away, 
and you would have to say that Ducati would be the uh, the most obvious choice for Vinales, I would say. Um, and I think you know they could probably offer Portimao, you know, quite a rise in wages um, compared to Yamaha. Um, but for Quartararo at this stage of his career to make a big move, I mean, I, th- I think that would be quite uh, well. I wouldn't say foolish, but yeah, quite a big risk. Um, but it is it is kind of ridiculous that we're talking about this in, in November 2019. Um, whenever, you know, we're talking about 2021 at the end of the day, there's so much can happen from now until then. But um, yeah, I read some comments with Davide Tordozzi after qualifying in Sepang and he, you know, he did give the indication that um, that uh, there were big, big admirers of both Vinales and Quartararo. Um So yeah, I think Ciccati will be playing, making a play for one of those two guys. Um, and yeah, with Jack Miller's speed, yeah, it's hard to envision Danilo Petrucci being in Ducati beyond 2020, and maybe even Andrea Davizioso as well. Yeah, I've heard from uh, from a couple of extremely high placed people in rival teams that uh, they think that Davizioso. Uh, if he signs with Ducati again, it'll just be for one year. Um, and they think they might, uh, you know, the, the, sort of that relationship might be at an end anyway. Um, also because, um, you know, there's been all this rumor about friction between Dovaccioso and Delinia for, for a long time. Um, but then, Dovaccioso, you know, where does, where does Dovaccioso go? Who, who would sign uh, Dovaccioso? Um, I suppose, you know, th- there's... The second, the, the second seat next to uh, Mark Marquez, and obviously we know that Mark Marquez likes to keep his enemies close, um, as we see all with uh, Jorge Lorenzo putting Jorge Lorenzo on the bike. Um, so yeah, it's it does seem like there's an awful lot to play for. There's a lot of options. Um, we don't even know whether Jorge Lorenzo will be on the Repsol Honda next year. There was rumours that Jack Miller was that uh, Repsol were interested in Jack Miller before um, uh, uh, before signing uh, uh, Lorenzo well, last year, two thousand and two thousand and eighteen. Um, so it does seem like there's um, it could all be up in the air. And you're right, it is. It's completely insane that we're even talking about it right now. And yet that's what happens when you have sort of everyone's contracts coming to the to an end at the same time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and it does, I mean, it, yeah, you, you wonder, will Lorenzo be continuing? Will Rossi be continuing as well? I mean, yeah, there's so many question marks up there. Um, but you'd have to say by the end of next year, there's going to be five, six Moto2 guys that probably feel that they'll be ready to step up. Um, yeah. Because there's already uh, it, talk of Alex Marquez uh, having an offer with Pramac Ducati. Uh, the, obviously, Luca Marini is going to is going to move up at some point. Um, who else have we got? Yeah, uh, Alex Marquez, Marini, Baldassari has uh, enlisted um, Simone Battistella, the manager of Andrea Davizioso. So he's going to be fine for a place if he can recover his form. Augusto Fernandez has been ridiculously fast for kind of where he is in terms of Moto2 experience. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's quite a few there. Um, yeah, Joanne Zarco, I mean, he, he wants to get back on the, the grid full-time. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a whole host of names really there. Jorge Martin, I'm sure, after another good season, yeah. uh, if he can continue this strong end of year that he's had. Pff, I mean, yeah, 
you know, where to start. Remy yeah. Gardner, another. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it could. Have, I wrote an article earlier this week about uh, 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 sort of going through the various ages of, of people. We could see, for the first time in history, uh, potentially not a single thirty-year-old on the grid in twenty twenty-one, which would be um, uh, absolutely remarkable. Everyone twenty-nine or younger. Um, uh, so it does seem it does seem like there are an awful lot of riders and not very many, uh, 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 you know. Not very many seats, or, or well, there's a lot of seats available as well, but you know, still not enough for all of the all of the available uh, uh, available talent. And it really does look like um, uh, it, we're also coming to a choice for. I mean, do you continue with uh, with David Shoso? Well, I think it's going to be 34 by the start of the 2021 season, or it's going to be 34 during the thir- the, uh, the the 2021 season. Um, or do you take a gamble on someone who's going to be 22, 23, 24 and hope to get sort of, you know, 10 good years out of them? It's a, uh, uh, it, it's a, do we try and win now with someone proven or do we try and win for a long time with uh, someone who can uh, take the fight to markets? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, teams will be looking at, I mean, essentially there's one guy that you're probably looking at well, two maybe with Vinales and Cuadraro that you could safely say for the next five years will be will be there fighting with with um, with Marquez. Um, but I, th- I even think you look at someone like Joanne Mir, I think, or Alex Rins. I mean, are we absolutely sure that those guys are going to be staying with Suzuki? Um, would Suzuki be making a play for someone like Cuadraro? Um, you know, that's not uh, that's not out of the realms of possibility either. Um, so yeah, so much to factor in. Yeah, exactly. What happens with KTM? Does KTM get more, uh, uh, become more competitive because they seem to be making uh, sort of, you know, small steps towards the front. Um, obviously, the input of Danny Pedrosa is making a difference as well. Um, and that's going to be a well-paid slot. Uh, and especially if the bike is competitive, then it would, uh, it could certainly become quite, uh, quite an attractive seat obviously they've got sort of a vast amount of sort of talent backed up through their moto 3 and moto 2 programs but um still there's lots of uh, lots going on this what happens with uh, the the new aprilia whether that can finally be competitive or not um again andrea inoni i think is a rider who is looks like he's going to be out of the uh, championship at the end of next year uh, not through a lack of talent, just because um, he's been too inconsistent and too difficult to manage. So there's uh, there's a lot going on, uh, and then there's well, we have to talk about Jorge Lorenzo. Um, we were saying earlier his results have been so inconsistent. There are still rumours that uh, that uh, Joan Zarco could take his seat for next year, but though although they seem to have. Um, gone a bit quiet but then we heard earlier this week that um Jonas Folger will not be Yamaha's test rider next year uh, so what does that mean for Zarco does Zarco go back there and uh, and, and become a test rider for for, for Yamaha yeah um I mean Zarco told us at Phillip Island that um him taking the the, the Honda seat for the final three races replacing Takanakagami uh, essentially ruled him out of the Yamaha um test role slot for which he had been vying um, since he quit KTM um, and he said that you know what it was uh, it was something I weighed up and I realized that um, after watching a couple of races from home 
that the only way to stay as a top rider is to be regularly competing. And even if that means stepping back into Moto2, then um, then that's something that, that he's willing to do. Um, he felt that he couldn't, well, from his words at Phillip Island, he felt that um, doing four or five races a year as a, as a wild card and a test rider um, wouldn't permit him to, to maintain that sharpness, that focus of, of being a rider capable of fighting inside the top 10. So I don't know, maybe maybe the fact that Folger is not going to continue with that team, um, maybe that would change his mind. Uh, maybe he'll have no options. It does seem that Akiyayo's Moto2 team obviously has a, has a, a space opened up now that uh, Lekawona, who was supposed to go there, is going to be moving up to Tech 3. Um, Zarko's won two, two world championships for IO's Moto2 team. Um, and IO would not deny that um, he is in regular contact with Zarko. Um, so there is a, a potential option for him to get back into racing full-time. Uh, if he was offered the, the Yamaha slot as a test rider or IO's Moto2 machine, I, mean, I would say Zarko would probably go with the Moto2 option from what he's been saying recently. Yeah, true. Uh, it makes you wonder whether you could combine uh, racing in Moto2 with uh, with being a Yamaha test rider, but I'm not sure that that would be uh, desirable, especially because we're going to have 20 races next year, so there's not going to be an awful lot of time to to do. I'm sure you're really looking forward to uh, 20 races next year, as much as I am, Neil. Um, yes. But uh, it, it doesn't leave a lot of time to actually to actually do both. But if uh, if Yamaha don't take Sarko, who do they put on the uh, uh, on the bike when all the rest of the riders of uh, well all the rest of the ex MotoGP riders who are test riders they're all tied up for next year, and also none of them have been able to sort of transition back into MotoGP. We've seen you know Calio come back on the bike and sort of ride around uh, pretty much at the back. We've seen uh, Piero have some good performances, but not, you know, amazing enough for him to earn a, a full-time seat. We've seen Bradley Smith come on what is obviously a very difficult bike and an uncompetitive bike, but sort of struggled to, to, to keep up with uh, Espargaro and Ian Oni. So, so being off the bike doesn't, doesn't really help. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah, uh, do, yeah, and, and what are the other options if uh, for having? Because obviously, Silvano Galbacera is supposed to be the the crew chief for the for the test team. He's leaving Valentino Rossi, uh, being replaced with David Munoz. But uh, you know, the, it's hard to imagine who else they would sort of put on that bike. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm stumped. I'm stumped at this moment. You've put me on the spot. <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, um, let us wrap up with our winners and losers from the flyaways. I think we'll have to do it for, uh, uh, for you know for, for for all three races more or less. Um, let me hear your winner from from the flyaways, Neil. Uh, my winner is going to be. Um Oh, a bit of a direct shootout between Fabio Quartararo and Maverick Vinales. Quartararo did so much to impress me, although the results of Phillip Island and uh, Sepang ultimately were, were quite disappointing. There was still so much to admire in his weekends at both circuits. Um, but I think for just the sheer... Um, yeah, his ability to bounce back from Phillip Island, uh, Vinales had pretty much a, a perfect weekend in Malaysia. And... Um, I mean, I think it's it's only when you're watching it live that you can you can really appreciate just how 
how resilient you must have to be whenever you've got someone like Marquez chasing you down in the middle of a race and the conditions are as tough as they were and he was not putting the foot wrong. I mean, it was a, a really, really excellent performance from him and we've been, I think, uh, maybe quite justifiably uh, tough on Vinales uh, recently and in the past. Um, but he rode the perfect race at Sepang. Um, he rode the perfect race at Phillip Island bar the final lap. Yeah, what, one mistake. Yeah, one mistake. And even then, you know, he uh, he kind of used up his, his rear tyre and once he had used up his rear tyre, it meant that he, Marquez was able just to, to gain on him at will out of the final corner. Um, and... Yeah, I, I, you know, speaking to some of the, the guys at Yamaha, they were actually really quite impressed with what he did at the end of the race because Vinales isn't normally a guy that risks it all, uh, puts it all in the line to, to kind of adopt a winner or straw bales approach as he did on the final lap. And they were quite impressed by the fact that he was willing to say, you know what, fuck it, like we've uh, we've not gone in to play for here in the championship. Let's just let's throw it all in. Um, so even in that defeat, how he took the positives from that, I know I said we we found it almost a bit laugh. Uh, we, we almost kind of like um, sniggered a little bit whenever he was saying that it you know it, it felt like a victory uh, crashing out in the final lap of Philip Island. But to come back at Sepang uh, in the way he did and uh, to resist Marquez, uh, it I'm going to say Vinales, um, the only rider, the only rider to to convincingly beat Marquez and he hasn't just done it once he's done it twice this year Assen and at uh, at Sepang so uh, yeah Maverick's my winner yeah I mean with the, they're both very good shouts um, I would add actually Franco Morbidelli because Morbidelli uh, he had a bit of a tough uh, first part of the season um, but he really he's really picked up in the second half of the season and he's sort of he's I think He's still being beaten by his teammate, but he's not being completely outclassed by his teammate, and that makes that makes a big difference. Um, but I think for my big winner, I'm going to have to go with Joan Zarco, just because um, he had been written off, um, and we all doubted what he could do on the Honda, whether it'd be that much better than on the KTM, and he came back in a really difficult situation at Phillip Island with dismal weather uh, conditions against him um, and had a very solid result and then he went to uh, Sepang and was having a really really good race uh, straight through to Q2 um, uh, you know starting on the first uh, it was at the front three row the uh, first three rows um, uh, in a battle where you you would expect him to be you would expect him to be you know if, if he was competitive you'd expect him to be fighting people uh, like uh, Jack Miller and Joan Mir and uh, uh, and all the rest of it so uh, and to do that on basically what a weekend and a half practice um, no testing it's just really impressive. It's going to be really interesting to see what he's like, uh, 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 what he can do at, at Valencia. I think it's a, it's a reasonably good track for him if, uh, if memory serves. Uh, yeah, big time, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's going to be really interesting to see what uh, 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 what he can do there and, of course, to see where it leads. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, Joan Zarco has also almost been sort of the... Um, uh, the thread which has run through this entire um, uh, show almost because we've been talking about him uh, uh, so often. So it's going to be interesting to see where where, where, where that leads. Um, uh, losers, Neil. 
Um, I'm going to say uh, Alex Rins, actually, um, just because it was around this time last year that we were uh, starting to notice Rins as a, a bit of a player um, up front, um, consistently getting podiums. He got, what, I think three podiums in the final four races last year. Um, and was just uh, showing unerring consistency, uh, being in around fourth, fifth place uh, when he wasn't on the podium. Um, and he's lost that just a little bit recently. Um, I think Suzuki's maybe been uh, one of the casualties of Yamaha uh, and their, their, their drastic improvements. Um, that's maybe been one of the reasons why he hasn't been as close. He's still been you know, pestering the Ducatis and, and the Honda um, on occasion, but he's just not really quite had that speed. And I think... Um, also, we have to factor in the fact that Juan um, Joanne Mir is now starting to quite consistently badger uh, Alex Rins. And Rins still hasn't really got his qualifying worked out. Um, I think the Suzuki guys think that that's definitely an issue that they've got with that bike, but Rins' qualifying has just repeatedly let him down. And uh, I think had it not been for uh, certain circumstances on Sunday I think uh, you know he could have been looking at Mir at Mir beating him for the second race in a row essentially um, because Mir's performance at Phillip Island was sensational I think he was one lap away from maybe getting on the podium um, and he was fastest in warm up on the Sunday at Sepang uh, and then on the grid apparently started having some real issues with uh, with his lungs um, that, that, that crash at uh, Bernou testing in August still has some some serious effects, especially in like really hot, um, sticky temperatures. And uh, I think that that really, um, I was speaking to his crew chief Frankie Carcetti after the race, and he said that uh, essentially the doctors have said it's going to be six months until he's completely back to normal. Um, so, um, but I think we've seen enough from Joanne Mir. Over the last three race weekends, he was. I'm just looking at the results from Mategi here. He's less, just over a second off Rins in the Japanese GP. Then he beat him quite comprehensively at Phillip Island. And had it not been for those physical issues at Sepang, I think uh, Mir could have been running up at the front. I mean, <laughs> Frankie Carcetti was even speaking about the possibility of a podium, which, you know, seems quite optimistic. But they really feel that Joanne is finding the uh, he's getting the knack of, of riding that bike so yeah Rins has not really been able to maintain that strong performance that he showed in the first half of this year and I think the double whammy is uh, the fact that he's now having to look over his shoulder in the garage uh, Joanne Mir is a coming yeah I mean that's a that, that is a very very good shout um, the obvious answer to the big loser is uh, Jorge Lorenzo but I'm not going to go for Jorge Lorenzo uh, I think I'm going to go for Miguel Oliveira, not even because of anything of his own doing. Um, Oliveira has, um, uh, I mean, he got taken out by Joan Zarco um, at Silverstone and that damaged his shoulder. Uh, and he's been struggling since then. He had an absolutely massive crash at... Um, um, at Phillip Island, obviously, which saw him ruled out because uh, he wasn't fit. Uh, he's gone away for uh, for surgery, so he's going to miss pre-season testing. And he's had the factory uh, KTM uh, rides taken away by his ex-teammate, who's going to be a rookie. So it's, um, I mean, it's uh, Miguel Oliveira may be the big loser, but none of it is his fault. It's you know, it's it's, it's not been there. And I think that perhaps 
makes it even worse. He doesn't even deserve it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And exactly, and he's going to have to watch his future teammates step onto his bike of Valencia, which won't be an easy thing. And I think that uh, that shoulder surgery, he's expecting a recovery period of around three months, so yeah. that's going to eat into uh, his off-season quite a bit too. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean that's that, that's the thing about uh, about shoulders. Shoulders are really um, uh, it's the most complicated joint in the um, uh, in the human body because it's because it's so incredibly flexible. Because you can move your arms sort of around everywhere, and any weakness in there makes it uh, makes it really really difficult. Um, and you know, we saw what Marquez had to do to get fit for uh, 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 to get fit for Sepang, and he wasn't really fit for the Sepang test early this year. Um, and I think that uh, I don't think that Oliveira's uh, surgery is really quite so as severe, but it's still a really, really big. Um, it's you know, it, it's a really big deal. Um, it's something that I want to do when I get to Valencia is try and talk to someone from uh, Alpine Stars maybe about because it does seem we're seeing more and more serious shoulder injuries. Obviously, what used to happen was well, we would see a lot of. Um, uh, collarbone injuries because uh, that was the first thing you broke when you fell off since we've had the introduction of the uh, airbags that has re massively reduced the number of broken collarbones we've seen um, but I am wondering if that has made the riders be behave differently take bigger risks or whatever and so we're starting to see sort of you know more major shoulder injuries so um it's it's interesting um uh these are just, yeah all of these uh, uh all of these developments so but uh, we shall see anyway uh, i think that's it uh, neil i shall be seeing you in just a few days time i think are you looking forward to valencia uh yes yes <laughs> Uh, yeah, I am. Not at this exact moment of recording, uh, because we're recording this on a Friday afternoon, um, and I'm about to take two days off. So I'm looking forward to that, first and foremost. But yeah, Valencia should be good fun. Um, let's hope that the weather is a bit better than last year, where we had three days of just desperate torrential rain. Um, it wasn't really a nice place to be in 2018. Um, but yeah, hopefully there's some good weather. I think there's uh, lots of interesting storylines still to be had. Can Quadraro win his first race? Um can Yamaha's keep up the good form? Um, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what Zarko can do. Lekuona making his debut. Yeah, should be a good weekend. Yeah, exactly. And of course, we have the test sort of immediately afterwards, um, which uh, I am looking forward to a little bit. But then I always remember that basically by Wednesday night um, after Valencia, after what is basically six days solid work and bikes and being stuck with the same people after an entire uh, after an entire season of them, you are pretty close to going postal and just uh, sort of you know strangling a couple of them um but even then it'll be great not you neil obviously i wouldn't strangle you you're far too nice um um uh, but we shall we shall see and then after that there's the Jerez test and that'll be that'll be your lot um so we shall certainly be sitting down after the Valencia race and possibly after the test as well for a show. Um, uh, so uh, look out for that. Um, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much. And I shall uh, see you next week, Neil. Thank you, David. Yep. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, now, remember to... 
give us a rating or a review on the place where you get these podcasts because that helps other people find them. You can keep up to date with us on the social medias, on the Twitter, uh, uh, twitter.com slash paddockpasspod, uh, facebook.com uh, paddockpasspodcast. We have a Patreon, and on there we uh, like to put little bits uh, little bits and pieces of extra stuff, um, a little bit sort of live from Ryder Debris, the real, so you can get the raw background new, uh, news. Uh, it will also allow us to uh, go to races and um, help improve the show. So please follow us there, uh, patreon.com slash paddockpasspodcast. Um, and uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. Uh, tell all your friends about us. Um, and we will speak to you soon. Bye. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Um, uh, where do we, oh, we, oh, do we need to do, do we need to get the clap? Uh, already there, mate. <laughs> I was out in well, the town with John last night, so uh, <laughs> solid all in all. Some tales of uh, a very young adolescent David Emmett foretold. <laughs> oh, Jesus, the worst thing I ever did was fucking introduce you to him. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's all lies. It's all complete lies. Okay, right. So you shagging his older sister is total lie. <laughs> Well, not quite. <laughs> there was a, a moment when I did like laugh very hard when he was just like, you know what, like all my mates, like they could have shagged anyone they wanted, but so many of them like shagged my older sister and I could just, I could never really get over that. <laughs>